Good morning, Grace. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 if you haven't done so already. I do want to let you know a few things before we start. Um, You're going to get exposed today. God's law exposes us for the sinners that we are. So I'm not talking to you today. I'm just preaching to myself because I need to hear this. So when I look out there and I see all of you, I see my face. And what a good-looking crowd you are this morning. (laughs) God's law exposes us as sinners. And we must first hear the law of God, the bad news, before the good news, the gospel, makes sense. So you're going to hear the law of God, and it's going to expose you as a selfish sinner this morning. But I'm not coming after you, okay? I'm talking to myself. But then I want you to leave here today feeling loved by God. Will you let God love you this morning? Let's pray one more time and we'll start. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we've already been singing of our brokenness and our sinfulness, so we are already exposed. Forgive us of our sins and let your law do its work in our heart this morning so that the gospel can come in and rescue us and free us. I pray for my brothers and sisters today and for myself, that we would let you love us this morning. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Peter went and did it again. Peter went and wrote another tough section of Scripture because this is another hard-to-explain passage with several interpretive issues. Like, for instance, what does it mean when Peter says, if anyone has suffered in the flesh, they have ceased from sin? What does it mean when he says you've suffered in the flesh, you've stopped sinning? What does Peter mean when he says the gospel was preached to those who are dead? So instead of going over all of these interpretation options to those questions, I just want to tell you how I understand the passage this morning. I'm just going to tell you how I understand the passage before us today. And yes, I sought help from two of my closest friends, Martin Luther and John Calvin. And both Luther and Calvin said in their commentaries on this passage that this is a passage that is speaking about mortification, about putting sin to death. This is a passage that reminds us to do that thing that we all struggle to do, which is this, to die to selfishness. Peter is reminding us in these verses, number one, that we can't earn God's love. Number two, that we are called as believers to die to our selfish wants and wishes and our sinful desires. And three, that we're called to love our neighbors. These, of course, are words and ideas and themes that Peter has already stressed throughout his letter. He told us before, in other words, but basically he said in his, earlier in his letter that we can't earn God's love through what we do. We're adopted. Even though many of us still act like we can earn God's love through our performance. We think he loves us more because we do certain things. Not true. But Peter has also told us in his letter that we are to be busy killing sin. And he also told us in his letter that we are to be busy loving one another. And Peter will return again to these themes in chapter 4 because he knows just how sinful and just how selfish we are. 
Peter has read our mail. Peter has read your mail. Peter knows that we struggle to believe in God's steadfast love. Peter knows that we are prone to get on the performance treadmill and try to earn God's love. Peter knows that we think our way is right. Peter knows that we are in love with ourselves. And so we think our way is right. We love to get our way. He knows that we worship the reflection in the mirror. He knows that we are lovers of self. So we live as doubters of God's outrageous love and instead we live as outrageous lovers of self. We find it hard to believe and hard to receive God's unconditional love for us. Meanwhile, we are madly in love with ourselves. Maybe there's a connection there. Maybe the reason we struggle to believe in and receive God's steadfast love is precisely because we are madly in love with ourselves. And maybe the reason we struggle to love one another is precisely because we are madly in love with ourselves. And so Peter comes back around once again to the same themes and he reminds us that we don't kill sin in order to earn God's love. We kill sin in order to spread God's love. We don't put sin to death. We don't mortify sin. We don't kill indwelling sin in order to get God to love us more. We don't obey his commandments so that God will love us more as if He loved us more because we obeyed. He doesn't love us more because we obey. No, we kill sin. We mortify sin. We put indwelling sin to death in order to spread God's love, not to receive his love. And it's only as we realize that we already have all of God's love that we could ever want or imagine or hope or dream. It's only as we realize that we already have all of God's love that we will then be free to go spread that same love to others. It's as we bask in God's love for us that we receive the power to kill our selfishness and then to go and love others. And that's Peter's point in this passage. Now, let me show you where I'm getting all of that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verses 1 through 2, and hear the word of the God who loves us so much. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Once again, it's no surprise, Peter has returned to the gospel. He reminds us again that Jesus died for us. He reminds us of the good news of God's outrageous love for sinners as evidenced by Jesus dying on the cross for us. And Peter does this, he comes back around to the gospel again so that we will be motivated to kill our sin, which will then enable us to love and serve other people. So Peter says in verse one that Christ suffered in the flesh. 
He said the same thing back in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, when he told us that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So what Peter means when he says that Jesus suffered is that Jesus died. When Peter says that Jesus suffered, he means that Jesus died for our sins. And so because Jesus died, Peter now wants to see his readers arm themselves with this same way of thinking. He wants them to have a crucifixion mindset, to be cross-centered. Peter wants them to be mentally prepared to die. Not physically, although it's a book of suffering and they may end up as martyrs. But Peter doesn't want them to die physically. He doesn't want them to kill themselves. Rather, he wants them to arm themselves and act like a soldier and do battle with indwelling sin. The sin that remains in every believer after they trust in Jesus. In fact, the phrase here, arm yourselves, is a military term. Peter wants his readers, he wants us to go to war on our sin and on our selfishness. So what Peter is saying is that they should be prepared to do battle with indwelling sin. If Peter could have read Puritan John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, that I am certain that Peter would have underlined and highlighted the following quotes. Your enemy is not only upon you, but is in you also. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. The mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh, is the constant duty of believers. That's all that Peter's getting at in verses 1 through 2. He wants them to be prepared daily, all the time, to fight indwelling sin. He wants them to understand that this is the constant duty of every believer. Listen, guys, this is our job, if you will, as a disciple of Jesus Christ every day. We wake up every day and indwelling sin is ready to hijack our minds and our hearts. Sin is ready to make us fall madly in love with ourselves all over again. And so we must arm ourselves with the word of God and prayer. And through the spirit of God, we must wage battle against our natural desires to love ourselves, and we must wage battle against our natural desire to fight to get our way in every relationship that we are in. None of you can relate to that, can you? None of you want your way in your relationships, do you? This is your life every day, Christian. Every single day you want and desire things that are wrong, that are sinful. Every single day you wake up and you want your way in every situation you find yourself in and in every relationship you are involved in. You want what you want every day. And you will do whatever it takes to get what you want. And most of the time what you want 
is sin. Most of the time, what I want is sin. Remember, when I say you, I'm just talking to me. Remember, I'm just seeing you. You look good today. I'm just preaching to myself here today. And you will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get what you want. And most of the time, what you want, what I want is sin. Most of the time, what you want, you want because you have made idols of all kinds of things and you want them more than Jesus. That's what indwelling sin does to us. It takes things, even good things, and it turns them into idols. Sin will turn even a good thing into an idol. It's a good thing to have a job. Sin will turn that good thing a job and make it an idol, and you will become a workaholic. It's a good thing to have kids and grandkids, but sin will take that good thing and make it an idol. So we must arm ourselves every day to do battle. And the starting place to do battle is right here where Peter started. He told us in verse 1 about Jesus. He told us the gospel. He told us that Jesus died or suffered in the flesh for us. And that must be what motivates and empowers us to do battle with sin. Grace Not guilt. Grace is what motivates and empowers us to kill sin and to kill selfishness. And it all starts with the conquest of Jesus over sin. As Tolian Shavidjan says, when the goal becomes conquering our sin, instead of soaking in the conquest of our Savior, we actually begin to shrink spiritually. When the goal of your life is to kill sin, rather than to soak in the fact that Jesus triumphed over sin, you'll begin to shrink spiritually. Yes, we are called to hate sin, to fight sin. Hear me out. I don't want any emails. I believe in killing sin. I believe in hating sin. We are called to hate sin. We are called to fight sin. That's precisely what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying that we should be busy killing sin. But our holiness, our sin fighting is not the focus of the Christian life. Going on a killing spree of sin is not the primary focus of the Christian life. Jesus Christ and what he has done for us is the center of the Christian life. It it sounds crazy when you think about it, but we have made ourselves, our wants, we have made our holiness the center of the Christian life. Jesus is the center of the Christian life. And not us. After all, we're called Christians, aren't we? Christ is in that name. I'm not a Benjian because I'm not the focus of the Christian life. Christ is. And that's why Peter starts talking about Jesus again in verse 1. Now, let me ask you this morning what if your holiness was the point of Christianity? What if your obedience and your radical commitment to God and your sin killing were the point of Christianity? Honestly, would you feel good right now? Would you feel good about your record of sin killing? I wouldn't. If I'm honest, I wouldn't because I'm such a failure. I don't kill sin as much as I want to. Oh, I want to every day and then I blow it. 
I want to kill sin more, but I don't do it as much as I want to. That means then that Christianity is not first about us getting better. It's not first about our obedience, our performance, our daily victory over sin. As important as these are, and they are very important to the Christian life, but Christianity is first about Jesus. Duh, right? I think unbelievers would come in here and say, you've made that the focus of the Christian life? I thought you worship a risen Savior. seems like he should be the focus. I think unbelievers probably get it better than we do. Discipleship starts with remembering what Jesus has already done, not what we must do. It's as we remember what Jesus has done for us, then, and only then, we'll be, in, we'll be, be empowered to do what we are called to do. But unfortunately, many Christians start with the question, what must I do? And they fail at the Christian life because what they should start with is, what has Jesus already done for me? You get the power to conquer sins, to kill sin, to mortify sin, to go on a sin-killing spree when you focus on Jesus' conquest of sin. That's what Peter is saying here. It's why he's circled back around to say, Jesus suffered in the flesh before he tells them to kill sin. And even more so, Peter is stressing that we should kill sin so that we can be a benefit to our neighbors. Our goal in sin killing is more about how we can bless others than it is about us. You see, but we hijack that and we make mortification and sanctification all about us. That's how self-centered we are. We take mortification, we take killing sin, and we make it about us. We make ourselves the focus. Sadly, we make killing sin about us and not about other people. And when we become self-absorbed in this way, we either get prideful about our sin-killing sprees because we think we're doing a good job. I've been killing sin all day. I'm such a good Christian. Or we despair because we fail at it and don't do it as much as we want. Now, we'll look more in depth at that in verses 7 through 8 in a few, few more moments. But first, let's look at one of these obscure phrases that Peter uses in verses 1 and 2. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What in the world does Peter mean when he says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has stopped sinning? Have any of you suffered in your human bodies? Have you stopped sinning because of that? If you're like me, no, you haven't. There are many interpretations out there, and we don't have time to cover them. You can study them on your own, but I'm going to rely on John Calvin and Martin Luther because I'm just some Johnny-come-lately here. So I'm relying on Calvin and Luther to how I understand that phrase, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter is saying that when you suffer in the flesh, when you die in the flesh, when you put indwelling sin to death in your body, When you mortify sin, you cease sinning in that moment. Of course, Peter does not mean that you actually stop sinning permanently or forever. We are sinners and we sin all the time. What he means is that if you are tempted to lust and you fight that desire, you fight that sin with the word of God in prayer and by the power of the spirit of God, then at that moment you have ceased. At that moment you stopped sinning, meaning you killed that sin of lust. You put it to death. When you kill sin in that moment, you have stopped its power in your life. It may be a short-lived moment, 
which in my experience it is. I'm sure it's the same for you. But you have told that sin at that moment, you have no power over me. You're saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. That's what I think Peter means when he says you've suffered or died in the flesh. You've ceased from sin. That's all Peter's saying. He's saying when you mortify sin, and you won't do it perfectly, nor will you ever deal it the death blow forever, You'll always struggle with sin until you die, but when you mortify sin and you kill it through the power of the Spirit and with the Word of God, then you ceased sinning in that moment, meaning you put that sin to death in your body. That's what Peter means. And the reason you do that is because you love Jesus. Because he is your treasure. Because you want to honor him. Because you say, Jesus is better than that sin. And so you spend the rest of the time in your flesh, as Peter says, the rest of the time in your body, not to live for selfish human passions, but for the will of God. So we kill sin in our bodies because we want to live God's way. We want to live for God's glory according to his will and not for ourselves. That's what Peter is saying in verses one through two. Kill sin, live for God's glory according to his will because Jesus is your treasure, because Jesus is better than anything that sin promises us. Martin Luther said it this way in his commentary. For whoever suffers in the flesh, says he, ceases from sin, and therefore the holy cross is profitable that sin may thereby be subdued. Since it requires you, that's the cross, to mortify lust, envy, and hate, and other wickedness. Therefore, God has imposed the holy cross upon us that he might urge and constrain us to believe. We should henceforth, as long as we live, hold the flesh captive through the cross. And by mortifications, so as to do that which pleases God. And not with the idea that we should or can deserve anything by it. He's saying we should have a crucifixion mindset. That we should be cross-centered. Not to earn God's love. Not to gain God's favor. Not to deserve anything from God. But how often do Christians think this way? I've been obedient. I deserve an answer to my prayer, God. I've been putting sin to death. I deserve this. Martin Luther says... We don't put sin to death to earn anything from God. We don't put sin to death because we deserve something. Martin Luther is just reminding us that we don't kill sin to earn God's love. We kill sin to spread God's love. We kill sin not to earn God's love, nor to earn anything from him by our obedience. We don't get in God's good graces because we kill sin or because we are obedient. We get in God's good graces because of God's good grace to sinners like us. It's unmerited favor. We cannot earn it in the little bit. We're in God's good graces because Jesus was obedient for us. So we don't kill sin to get God's love We kill sin to spread God's love. But who do we spread God's love to when we kill sin? Who do we spread God's love to when we go on a sin-killing spree? Well, in the next few verses, Peter will tell us that we spread God's love, the message of his love, the gospel. We spread that to unbelievers 
when we kill sin. And then later in verses 7 through 8, he'll tell us that we spread God's love to believers when we kill sin. But first, let's look how we spread God's love to unbelievers when we kill sin. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Surely the phrase, when you do not join them, means they have mortified sin in their body. They said no to that sin. Peter says that unbelievers will be surprised when we don't join them in letting our sinful, selfish desires run wild. Unbelievers are shocked when we don't join them in doing the things that Peter lists here. Of course, we are sinners just like them, but we're in union with Christ now. We're just as broken and sinful as these unbelievers. The difference is that we belong to Jesus and they don't. We are in union with Christ, but even though we're broken and we're still sinners, we don't live for these things. We want to live for Jesus, not to earn his love because we already have his love, but we want to live for him because we love him, because he's our treasure and our joy and our delight. So when the world asks us and unbelievers ask us to join their parties and their orgies and their passions and etc., we are called to spread God's love through our sharing of the gospel with them. They are shocked when we don't join in their flood of debauchery. They're shocked because hopefully we're sharing the gospel in that moment, telling them about God's outrageous love for sinners. Hopefully we're telling them that we don't want to do those things or that we do want to do those things and we're tempted to do those things but we're putting those desires to death in our body because Jesus was put to death in his body because of what he has done for us. He loves us unconditionally. And we could do those things and he would still love us, but his love makes us not want to do those things. Do you see now why Peter brought up Jesus dying for us, suffering in the flesh, so that we could do what Peter already asked us to do in 1 Peter 2, 3, which is taste and see that the Lord is good. It's when you realize that God's love is so outrageous and so unconditional and so sweet and so good that even if you went on a sin binge, he would still love you. His love would never change. And when you realize that God's love is that crazy and that unreal and that out of this world that he would still love you if you went on a sin-enjoying spree, when you realize that he'll love you even if you do that, then that truth makes you not want to go on a sin-enjoying spree. Coming to grips with the fact that God's love will not end his outrageous, never-stopping, never-ceasing eternal love, that it will not end even when you sin. That makes you not want to sin, doesn't it? Kind of takes the the glitter and the shine off of sin that's promised to you. You say, oh, it looks so good, and you'll love me anyway if I indulge? Yes. Well, oh, it doesn't look that good now because your love is better than life, Psalm 16. 
So unbelievers are shocked when we don't join them in letting our sinful, selfish passions run wild. And hopefully they're shocked because hopefully in that moment as we say no, hopefully we're telling them about Jesus, telling them why we don't want to indulge in those things. Hopefully we're telling them about how we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that he is our supreme treasure in this life. Hopefully we're telling them about God's unconditional love for sinners, which was displayed on the cross when, as Peter says in verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh. Hopefully we're telling them, I'm not going to give in to these fleshly desires. I'm going to kill that sin in my body because Christ died in his body. Hopefully we're giving them the reason for the hope that we have, like Peter mentioned in chapter 3, verse 15. When this is why we exist, grace to tell people about God's outrageous love for sinners as evidence on the cross, Jesus suffering in the flesh. This is why we have our mission statement. It's worded the way it is. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. So hopefully unbelievers are shocked because we are telling them about God, about God's love for sinners and that they can get in on that love if they repent and trust in Jesus. And if they don't repent, then judgment awaits them. And that's what Peter says next in verses five through six. See, sadly, so many Christians have left God's judgment out of the gospel. The law must do its work to expose us as sinners and say we all deserve to die and be punished in hell forever. But so many Christians are afraid because that's politically incorrect. And then sometimes some unbelievers come along and they say those words and you think, oh, why couldn't we have come up with that? I heard a song yesterday on the radio by Motley Crue. You remember Motley Crue? Been doing rock music for 30 years. They're on their farewell tour. They did this, released this one final song. They're on their farewell tour right now. This one final song called All Bad Things. And I think they get the law of God better than we do. We want to hush and silence the law of God. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. Motley Crue has just opened up the doors. This is what they say in their last song that they're releasing on their final tour. They says, we're just here for our crucifixion. All bad things must end. All bad things must die. Even the devil's got to pay for his crime. They get the final judgment. Now, sadly, it hasn't changed their lives And I'm praying, God, have mercy on Motley Crue and save them. And God, stop more pastors in their sermons and have them pray for bands like Motley Crue. But they get the law of God and they get the final judgment better than we do because we're afraid to share that in our gospel message. But that's exactly what Peter says. This gospel is free. You can get in on God's outrageous love for you as evidenced by Jesus suffering in the flesh, but you have to repent and believe. And if you don't, the final judgment awaits. Look at verse 5. But they, these unbelievers who are shocked when we don't join them, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So those who do not repent of their rebellion and breaking God's law, and they don't trust in Jesus... Those who do not glorify and enjoy God in this life, but rather let their sinful, selfish desires run wild in a flood of debauchery, they will stand before the Lord and give account. 
Motley Crue was right. The devil must pay for his crimes, and so must every human being. But then Peter says, and the Lord is ready to judge sinners. But God would rather pardon sin than punish sin. God, his heart beats to forgive sinners. He loves showering sinners with mercy. But his justice and his righteousness and his holiness cry out that he must judge those who do not repent and trust in Jesus. He must judge those who break his law. But then Peter says in verse 6 that this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the way the Spirit, in the way the Spirit of God does. What does Peter mean when he says that the gospel was preached to those who are dead? There are many interpretations. You can pursue them on your own. I think Peter is speaking of believers who heard the gospel while they were alive and they repented and trusted in Jesus, but then they died. They were judged in the flesh, meaning they experienced physical death, but now they live in the spirit the way God does, meaning their spirits are alive and are with Jesus now. So the gospel was preached to the people who are now dead, meaning believers, but it was preached to them while they were alive. Then they experienced the sentence of death, and now their spirit lives with Jesus. But then Peter returns to his readers who aren't dead yet, and in verse 7, he challenges them to live a life of self-sacrifice. Oh, those words self-sacrifice sting, don't they? I do in my heart. Look at verses 7 through 8. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The first thing you notice about this verse or that I did is that it has been a long time since Peter wrote it. And we're still here and Jesus hasn't returned. Now, Peter did not know for certain that in his day the time was short for Jesus to come back because obviously Jesus didn't come back yet, right? When Peter says that the end of all things is near, he just means that all of God's story of redemption has been accomplished and the only thing left on the horizon is the return of Christ whenever that would be. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected. He fulfilled all that needed to be done in order to redeem his elect people except for his final return. And that's what Peter means when he says the end of all things is near. But that truth, the end of all things is near, that truth about the return of Jesus, it caused Peter to challenge his readers once again to kill indwelling sin. Surely, that's what he means when he says be self-controlled and sober-minded in verse seven. He's saying we should put sin to death. We should die to sin. We should kill sin in our mortal bodies. We should kill all those selfish desires that we have. And we have so many selfish desires. Amen? Bless those of you who said amen. We love to get our way, don't we? You know what? Burger King said that we could have our hamburger our way. 
So we want our way, not just with our hamburgers, but we want our way in every single relationship that we are in because our way is right, our way is best, our way is the smartest, our way is the wisest way, our preference for things is the best, our taste in things is the best, our thoughts are the best. That's why Jesus died, to save selfish sinners like you and like me. And that's why Peter said to be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, kill sin. Kill sin because we are so selfish. And he says that we should be killing selfish, sinful desires for the sake of our prayers. I think what he means is that if you are a self-absorbed person, you don't pray for others as much. You're just consumed with you and your own little kingdom that you've set up, and so only your prayers matter to you. Peter says, kill selfish desires and sins. Be self-controlled and sober-minded so that other people actually start showing up on your prayer list. So that other names and other needs besides you start surfacing in your prayers. You see, we're just so selfish and self-absorbed with our own growth and our own sanctification that it even shows up in the way we pray. No one has to teach us to pray for ourselves, do they? We just do that. What's hard is feeling so much of a connection with other people, so much of a connection with other people in your church family and in your lives. What's hard is feeling so much of a connection with other people that you want to pray for them and not just yourself. And the reason that we don't do that more is because we are self-absorbed. We are so focused on our change, our transformation, and our growth. Which is why we need to hear what David Pallinson said. He said, your growth is not an end in itself. Your growth is to build Christ's whole church, not just help you get it together. Your growth is not an end in itself. It's not, not so you can be better. Your growth is for the entire church your entire church family. But how do we Christians typically approach sanctification and spiritual growth? We focus on us. Am I changing? Am I growing? How am I doing? Am I getting any better? And we forget that God's goal in transforming us is not so we can feel better about ourselves, not so we can look down on others who haven't arrived like we have. God's goal in transforming us is not so we can finally get it together. Not so we can parade around like some mature Christian who has it all together. God's goal in transforming us, I think it goes without saying in this church, is for his glory. But God's goal in transforming us is not for us, but for the benefit of his church. Not so we would walk around like the fruit police. Through the spirit in your life, I, I don't see any fruit. Are you growing? Are you growing? It's not that we walk around like spiritual doctors checking everyone's temperature. Are you red hot for Jesus? Feeling a little bit cold today. I don't know about you. Are you a believer? Not that we'd walk around and say, sold out for Jesus, radically committed, probably a carnal Christian. God's goal in transforming us is so that we would benefit the church, 
so that we would not be madly in love with ourselves, but madly in love with Jesus and his bride, the church. God's goal in transforming us is so that we would start focusing on other people and not the reflection in the mirror. So that we would start praying for others, caring for others, and spreading God's love to others. And Peter challenges our self-centeredness here because we have been recipients of God's love and God's grace. Then we should be spreading that love and grace to others. Remember, we don't kill sin to earn God's love. We kill sin to spread God's love. And we can spread God's love. The love that we have received without any earning on our part, we can spread that love to others by loving them and forgiving them. Oh, another hard phrase for the Christian, isn't it? To forgive somebody. Verse eight says, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is why we are to be killing sin, why we should be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we can spread God's love to others. Again, commenting on this verse, Martin Luther said this, subdue your flesh and lusts. Unless you do it, you will easily offend one another and yet not easily be able to forgive one another. Take care, therefore, that you subdue the wicked lusts so you shall be able to show charity, love one to another, and to forgive, for charity or love covereth sins. The apostle Peter and the great reformer Martin Luther are saying that if you don't go on a sin-killing spree in your life, then you won't be able to spread God's love around. If you don't kill your selfish sins that are raging in you, you'll be easily offended by other people. If you don't mortify sin, you will find it very difficult to forgive others. If you don't subdue wicked lusts, you won't be able to show love to others. You won't be able to forgive others. Therefore, go on a killing spree of your sin so that God's love would spread. Let me say that again. Go on a killing spree of your sin so that God's love would spread to other people. Go on a killing spree of your selfishness so that you can forgive other people. Go on a killing spree of your sin so that God's love, the love that you love so much and enjoy so much, so that his love will spread out and cover over a multitude of sins, a multitude of sins that have been done to you. Has someone hurt you? Has someone offended you? Do you find it hard to forgive? Do you find it hard to love? Kill your sin. 
That's what you got to do. You got to look to Jesus, see him dying in the flesh, see him suffering in the flesh on the cross, see him giving his life, the righteous for the unrighteous. You got to taste and see that the Lord is good and then go on a killing spree of your sin and then watch God's love spread and cover over millions and millions of sins. Be overwhelmed today that Jesus loves you. Selfish you, remember I'm preaching to myself here, okay? Selfish you, self-absorbed you, always wanting to get your way you, always complaining you, always grumbling you, always staring at the reflection in the mirror and loving what you see you. Jesus loves you. He loves that you, the real you. That should overwhelm you. And that should cause you to go spread that same love to others and to forgive others. That love is free. God's love is free. You can't earn it. It's yours. God loves you right now. So you kill sin not to earn God's love, but so that you can go spread that love to others. That's why you kill selfish desires. That's why you obey So you can spread that love to others by loving them and forgiving them and letting their sins against you be covered up. This is why we believe in mortification. This is why we believe in killing sin in this church. Not so we can get a sticker in Sunday school class. Not so we can inwardly brag about how we have grown so much spiritually. Not so we can get on the scale every morning and see how many sin pounds we have shed not so we can earn more of God's love. Not so God will like us on Facebook. God liked me. He's following me. God favorited and hearted and did whatever you do on social media. No, we kill sin and selfish desires so that we can be a blessing to others. That's Peter's point here. Other Christians are why we kill sin. Of course, for God's glory. But Peter's saying it's for other believers so that we won't be easily offended, so that we would be ready to forgive. Have you ever looked at it this way? This, this, this passage was just, psh, lights went off for me, like, oh, I'm so slow, but man, that's so good. Have you ever looked at it this way, or has, has all of your Bible reading, all of your praying, all of your fasting, all of your spiritual growth, has it just been about you? Is your Christian life all about you? There's a better way, and it's way more freeing. Not living for yourself is so freeing. Living to glorify and enjoy God and to be a blessing to others is so freeing. Forgiving other people is so freeing. Letting God's love cover over a multitude of sins is so liberating. Do you want to be free today? then look to Jesus. He loves you. He loves self-absorbed you. And he wants to set you free so that you can spread his love to others. Freedom awaits. Let God love you today. Let's pray. And so, Father, we have been exposed by your law. We are selfish sinners and we want our way. And yet you sent Jesus 
who suffered in the flesh and died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to you. Would you help us to be not so self-absorbed in our life, our sanctification, our mortification? Would you give us eyes to see that freedom comes not when we are focused on ourselves? Freedom comes when we bless others, love others, forgive others. So would you let love cover over a multitude of sins done against us so that we would find freedom and so that the people that we love and forgive would walk in freedom too. Do it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.